Jesus himself focused his attention on people, and those are the people that founded our church that we know today. And so, obviously, to Jesus himself, the idea of discipleship was important. His strategy seemed to be to spend his time with a selected group of individuals into whom he would pour himself and eventually impact the world. And I would like to challenge us today to examine the ways in which we disciple, what are the more or less effective techniques of doing that, who we disciple, how do we select who, we're, who we are going to spend our time with and how we are going to invest our time, and where we disciple. And as we consider what our discipleship should look like in specifically medical missions, is what I do, um, it's my hope that we can learn from Jesus' example and enhance our ability to effectively mentor healthcare providers who are committed to taking the, the gospel of Christ, meaning healing of mind, soul, and body into all the world, and in particular into Africa, as we are discussing. Now, we're all probably familiar with the Great Commission from Matthew 28, and we bring that up frequently. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. As I think about discipleship, and what does that mean when we say someone is discipling me, or I am discipling someone else, or I have a discipleship group, what are we getting at? And I'd like us to look at a few different models of discipleship, and then look at Jesus' model of discipleship, and see what we can learn from that. So a few practical models would be some of those listed, apprenticeship, the rabbinic model of discipleship, the Greek model, the didactic model, and then finally, as we'll look at Christian or Jesus model of discipleship. So if we look at the apprenticeship model, uh, it's essentially working side by side with an expert and then modeling one's performance to that expert and thus coming to tacitly understand the positions or the duties of that position. And all of us do that to some degree or another in the way whoever it is in your life that you're discipling, they're looking at you, they're modeling their lives after you uh, to some degree. Uh, so apprenticeship has certain validities. Um, I'm not sure that Donald Trump, apparently there is a TV show in the United States called The Apprentice, which I've never watched before in my life, but I'm not sure he's the best model of an apprentice that we should be looking at. When we think of apprentice, we often think of a, a manual skills type of a thing, a, a shoemaker or a mason or a builder or an electrician, and someone takes an apprentice to learn from them. And we do this in our life, and there's certainly validity to this as well. If we look at the rabbinic model, and this probably would have been one that Jesus was very familiar with, the rabbinic model of discipling, there were a variety of ways to characterize the rabbinic way of teaching. One is dividing their teaching into these threefold areas, the Haggadah, which is knowing the Word of God, the Halakha, which is doing the Word of God and walking in the way, and then finally, parable, using stories or analogies to contextualize teaching. So in the Haggadah, I think we, we do that in our areas of medical discipleship, don't we? We, we teach medicine and 
pediatrics and surgery and obstetrics and gynecology and all the fields you can, basic sciences, we teach these things. But of course we need to go beyond that. We need to get to the halakha, which is actually living out our teaching uh, and walking with the disciple that we are discipling through this. Uh, I think we also all use parables. Jesus was very comfortable with using parables. We do this at times when we give oral examinations to our students, which I do a lot of actually. Uh, we're kind of telling parables and asking them to interpret them for us and tell us what they find, what is the meaning of that parable and what would they do with that parable. If you look at the, the Greek model, which was certainly in vogue in Jesus' time, and Paul dealt with the Greek model or the Socratic model uh, for, for many years, uh, it tended to center upon theoretical philosophy and notions of individuals and state and justice and government and those sort of things. In its purest form, and that would be through Socrates, who really kind of brought this about, there was genuine concern for the learning of the disciples. Socrates would accept no fees for his training. I don't know if you were aware of that. He would not allow anyone to pay him for his training. That was in contrast to the, the sophists of that time, who probably most notable was a man named Protagoras. Uh, and the sophists were known for uh, extreme rhetoric and public speaking, very flamboyant and extravagant speech and winning the crowds over, uh, often with deceit in their minds and hearts, uh, but were very popular and charged a great deal of money for their, for their teaching. Um, but they tended to spend a lot of time uh, in the theoretical areas and not really being involved in real life and, and how that worked itself out. We should ask ourselves, are we more along the Socratic line or along the Protagoras line? Are we pumping ourselves up and looking good for the crowd? And are we making room for the marginalized, for the poor, for the needy within our teaching, within our discipling groups? Are we able to do that? If you look at the didactic model, this generally implies imparting a defined body of knowledge. There's usually a programmed course to it, and there's usually some measure of outcome. And we're all familiar with this, right? We've sat in this through our classes, through primary school and secondary school and university. Often lectures are involved, and workshops, even things like this, would be a didactic type of sharing in some sense. Um, didactics often, th that concept is often spurned by open thinkers, you know, they, my public health colleagues say, oh, you can't teach through didactic methods. You have to sit in a circle and face each other and sing kumbaya first, and then you can, then you can learn from each other. Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's value to that as well, but there certainly is value to imparting knowledge. We need to study the scriptures. You need to do the hard work. You need to study the basic sciences and study the medicine that you're trying to practice. Um, you know, the didactic model can have poor outcomes as well. It can be boring and long at times, and I hope you don't look like this by the end of our, what do we have, three hours here today to share together? Um, 
But let's think for just a moment about the responsibilities of a teacher. How many of you do some kind of teaching or discipling in your ministry? So most of the people here do some type of discipling. What are your responsibilities as a, as a teacher and discipler? Well, one of them that I would ask you to think about is that of imitation. Students will find identity to some degree within their teacher. Students will even begin to look and act like their teacher. So those of you who raised your hands, your teachers, are you prepared for your students to imitate you? What would they look like if they imitated you? You know, we, I see this in medicine frequently. We, I have visiting doctors come and work with us at, at Tenwick Hospital, and I had a visiting cardiac anesthesiologist who was working with us on cardiac cases, and uh, another doctor walked through the hall and just saw him standing by the bed of the patient doing something, and he said, he's from the Texas Heart Institute, isn't he? I said, yeah, actually he is. He said, how'd you know? He said, just the way he's standing, the way he's addressing the patient. He said, that's how they all do it from that institution. And it's true. Our disciples start to look like us and act like us. In the surgical world, that's rampant at at uh, Duke University, where Dave Sabiston was the chairman for many, many years, they used to talk about a decade with Dave because surgical training is meant to be five years, but if you go there, it's probably going to be ten. So you'd spend a decade with Dave. And when you come out, you act and walk and operate like David Sabiston did. At uh, Johns Hopkins University, they have Halstead, who was their great-grandfather of surgery, Every Tuesday is Halstead Day, and everybody has to wear a Halstead tie so that they look like Halstead. I mean, they're very, very uh, explicit about imitating Halstead in that. Are you frustrated with what you see in your disciples? If you've been teaching and discipling for any length of time, the answer to that has to be yes. There are certainly times you're frustrated. Why do they do this? Why do they not understand this? Why do they not? Well... Are they imitating you? Is that perhaps what's frustrating you, that they're actually imitating the parts of you that you're not so thrilled about? The point being, we will be imitated, and we need to consider that. Are you prepared as a teacher for your students to start to look and act like you? Another responsibility of a discipler is to encourage self-learning. How often did Jesus answer a straight question with a straight answer. It was pretty rare, wasn't it? He would occasionally, every now and again, like after he'd tried to describe it to the disciples in multiple parables and they didn't get it, he'd finally say, all right, let me just tell you straight. This is what it is. Yeah, I'm going to die. And they still didn't get it, of course, after that. Even after he said, I'm going to die and be raised again. And when he did die, they say, what's happened? Whoever expected this? You know, that. So he rarely answered a straight question with a straight answer. He encouraged his disciples, his students, to think this through and come up with an answer that makes sense. Uh, think through how you're doing this. So are we as disciples facilitating self-learning within our disciples? Or are we simply giving answers out? Um, you'll find some people who always give answers out that the time they don't give an answer, like the time they'll say, that's a good question, why don't you give us 10-minute presentation on that tomorrow morning at rounds? That's a very typical response of a, 
a teacher in surgical rounds. Usually what that means is the teacher doesn't know the answer to that question, and so he's suggesting that the disciple go learn it and then share it with everybody. Um, but are we facilitating self-learning? What about the responsibilities of authority as a discipler? Disciples agree to abide by decisions made by their teachers. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic times, in the, in the biblical times of rabbis, and even today, rabbis are given permission to render decisions. And the disciples agree to abide by those decisions. So, of course, that brings up two questions. Are you prepared to make difficult decisions as a discipler? And are your students prepared to accept them? These are things you need to discuss and share. I remember at Tenwick Hospital when I hadn't been there all that long and we had a brand new internship program. So at Tenwick we started, when I first came, we had no medical students, no interns, no nothing like that. We started with a program of interns and took one intern and the next year two interns and then that grew to four and that grew to seven and that grew to 12 and 16. And so we now train 16 interns every year we then started a family practice residency program and then a surgical residency program, which I've been involved in for the last uh, six years now with the surgical training. But when we had recently started the internship program, I met with the interns and said, we're going to start a program of, uh, of directed study through one of the surgical texts and we'll have quizzes every week. So every Tuesday morning at seven o'clock, there's a quiz that you will be uh, required to take. The next day the interns came to me as a group and they had one spokesman that they had elected and he said to me, now Daktari, he said, we want to talk about the, these proposed quizzes. Uh, he said, we're concerned that it sounds like there'll be a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a lot of time taken with this and I said, oh okay, I, what I'm hearing is you're excited about the chance to learn, you're looking forward to all the knowledge you're going to gain from these quizzes, uh, and I said, by the way, they're not proposed quizzes, they're actual quizzes that are going to happen on Tuesday. And he looked at his group of followers and they all kind of, he said, Dr. I don't think we are communicating. <laughs> I said, no, we're, we're communicating very well. It's just you're not enjoying the answer that you're hearing to the communication. So are you willing to make difficult decisions and are your students willing to abide by those? Have you set that up in such a way that that relationship allows that. Now what about difficult learning? Teachers will work through the hard cases with their students. And we all know of teachers and programs, whether that's residency instructors, that would be consultant doctors uh, or other types of teachers who aren't that interested in being involved with the difficult cases. You know, uh, teachers get up in the middle of the night for difficult cases. Those of you who hear maybe mentoring and discipling medical people, you have to get up in the middle of the night. You know, you're not allowed to just not answer the phone. You're not allowed to say, well, just handle it on your own. It happens a lot. It actually does. But it's not how it's meant to be. Teachers get up in the middle of the night. Teachers do not leave their students without support. Discipling can be messy at times. Are you prepared to go through those messes and deal with those messes as you are trying to disciple and train people? Are you prepared for the difficult learning? 
This is one of our uh, chief residents who graduated last year, Arega, uh, and he is uh, Ethiopian. And uh, we have started a, a program where we take our residents out to Tenwick is a fairly big institution. We have 300 beds and we do about 8,000 operations a year and we have ICUs and this sort of thing. But we want our students to experience more than that, so we've started taking them out to outlying places. And I've started going to South Sudan and working there a couple times a year and all of our residents will do these rotations with us. So I took Arga up a couple years ago to South Sudan and we were working there at a clinic. Um, this was uh, after our first case, uh, the first time I ever went to South Sudan. So it was 54 degrees centigrade every afternoon. That's 126 degrees for you Americans who might be here. It was very, very hot. There was uh, very little way to get cool during that time. Uh, and it was messy. And even the, the sleeping conditions weren't the ideal. Uh, you could sleep in that house, but I chose to sleep outside of the house because it was you know, a few degrees cooler uh, than that. Here's a woman that we took care of up at that institution. Uh, and this is not far from Juba in South Sudan. Uh, this woman had about half of her face taken off by a hyena. And uh, I was surprised at that. I work here in Kenya and we have hyenas, but it's pretty rare that they attack an, an adult. And I asked them, is this this must be a rare case. And I actually did her sixth operation to open up her nose so she could breathe once again, to create a flap so that she could, could breathe there. She'd already had five operations up to this point. Uh, and they said, no, it's not uncommon. We see many, many of these cases. I said, what is different about Sudanese hyenas than Kenyan hyenas? How can they be so, they're the same species. And they told me that during the time of the war, there were so many dead bodies lying everywhere that they didn't have time to bury that the hyenas just developed a taste for eating people. And so they had shifted and would now attack people regularly. And we saw many such cases while we were there in a very difficult area. Here's a little girl. Uh, she's called Nyanacek. And that in the Dinka language, do we have any Dinkas here? No, okay. In the Dinka language, that means the girl with the defect. So that was her name. She was known as the girl with the defect. And what Nyanacek had was bladder extrophy. So she was born with the bladder not formed and the ureters emptying directly into the skin. And this should have been fixed, you know, in the first week of life, ideally. She's five years old and uh, an outcast in her village. Her mother had left. Her f <coughs> it was quite surprising to me, her father, was the only one who would bring her and none of her family, her grandparents wouldn't touch her because she was the girl with the defect. Um, so we brought her in and operated on her. The Dinka people in general are quite tall. This was one of their doctors working with us. And as you can see, I'm not very tall myself, but he's pretty tall, this guy, working together and uh, giving Nyanacek a new way to pass urine effectively. Uh, but taking your disciples into difficult areas. Are you willing to do that, to walk through the difficult areas with them, helping them to learn, helping them to grow, and perhaps exposing them to ministries that God may call them to? It's my hope and desire that one of our 
graduates will be, feel called to be up in this area, working. And that's what we're trying to do in our particular institution, is growing people who can go out and carry on this work in other places. So now if we focus, as in the last part here, let's focus on Jesus' model. We've looked at a few other models, um, and they're not mutually exclusive models, of course. We can, we can take bits and pieces from each of these models and incorporate them into how we do our discipleship. But if we look at Jesus' model, I'm impressed with a few things. Number one, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, this is from John 1. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, and he became a servant to his disciples. So let us look at these, each of these for a moment. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Discipleship has to be done in real time, in the flesh. It's difficult to disciple someone by telephone or by email. It can be done to a degree, but it's not the full deal. Discipleship must be done in the flesh and in real time. Discipleship means getting in the trenches and staying there, and discipleship is a long-term commitment. A two-week discipleship generally doesn't accomplish what you'd hope it would accomplish. You know, I hear a lot in my circles, people talk about working yourself out of a job. And to some degree, that's a myth. To some degree, let me explain what I mean by that. It's not a myth because of a genuine desire to pass on learning and responsibility. I think all of us who are discipling people, that is one of our goals and one of our desires. It's not a myth because we all have colonial tendencies to get and maintain control forever. And it's not a myth, uh, as I say, because that we all want to maintain control. It's a myth, I think, because of unrealistic expectations of time. The four-week plan, or even the four-year plan, when we're talking about big, life-changing, culture-changing issues, usually doesn't work. Um, so to say, well, and again, we have many, many visitors to Tenwick at our hospital, and um, some come and say, all right, in the next four weeks, I want to accomplish this. I want to I teach a surgeon how to become a surgeon, and I want to I want to train the next Billy Graham, and I, you know, I, really high goals. And it's not bad to have high goals, but it's also good to have realistic time expectations. I think the myth, as I say, comes because we have unrealistic time expectations. And what I have come to see in our work is that often you're talking generational changes. Generational changes when it comes to ethics, to biblically-based living, and serving, that this takes generations because the influences of grandma and grandfather, which often are good influences, but are not sometimes not good, maintain for many, many years. So the effort you put into discipling someone now may not produce a societal change for two generations. And that needs to be understood and you need to have a realistic viewpoint that that's and you're there, you're committed for the long haul to bringing that about. Now you might argue that Jesus did it in three years. You know, he only spent three years with his disciples. Well, I'm not Jesus. Um, 
And he had the Holy Spirit as well. In fact, he said, I have to go now so that the Holy Spirit can come. If I don't go, he won't come. And he had quite a different backup system than we have. Um, this was our group. This was four interns that we started with uh, way back uh, in, at Tenwick Hospital. And as I mentioned, that grew to seven interns, and that grew to 12 interns, and that grew to 16. And when we put the whole group together with teaching and faculty, it became a fairly large group. Then, as I mentioned, in 2008, we started a surgical training program and took two trainees and didn't know for sure where this was going to head. This has now developed into a fully functioning program, a five-year surgical training that we take two every year. We're looking at probably increasing that before very long. Um, we didn't have a 100% success rate. Some who have started have not finished. And if you have your goal to be a 100% success rate, you will be disappointed. Um, we need to keep those things in mind. And I know missionaries who, who say, you know, I've put a lot of time into this and this, and it didn't work, and I'm just going to go home. <laughs> I say, well, your expectations were too high. You had 100% success that you were expecting, and you didn't get it. And I'm sorry for that, but you've got to be, are you committed? I have some colleagues who will tell me, oh, I'm just ready to throw in the towel. And I say, really? And you had a bad day and you're ready to throw in the towel? Come on. I mean, how, what is your long-term commitment? Discipleship takes a long time. Uh, but that program grew to more surgical residents so that now, again, we have 10 surgical residents that we have at any given time. We're starting uh, probably next year an orthopedic training program and within two years a cardiothoracic fellowship training program. Uh, so that continues to grow and that's the group. So that is the group. Uh, that's last year and, and that is this most recent year. That's my discipleship group. That's what I spend. I spend 90% of my time with those 10 people. And that means saying no to some other things some things that I would enjoy doing, things that I like doing, but I can't do all those things. I've purposed in my heart and mind that this is the ministry, this is the field that God has called me to, and I put the majority of my time into these 10 people. Uh, this is our whole surgical faculty uh, with our group of trainees there. But it does reap rewards. When I see our chief residents, here's our two chief residents running a cardiac operation essentially by themselves, uh, doing the intraop cardiac echo, taking care of that patient, taking care of that patient postoperatively. You begin by degrees to see the rewards of the time you're spending, but it takes a long time to get there. And when I see them graduate, and go on, Araga is now the only surgeon at a mission hospital in Ethiopia. Agneta, our other surgeon there, is uh, pursuing a fellowship in pediatric surgery, and then she'll be joining our staff at Tenwick Hospital. That this, in my opinion, is the future of medical missions in Africa, is discipling Africans to be involved, and they, they want to be involved. Of course they do. They're my brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we share in this together. Then we beheld his glory. A Christian discipler reflects the glory of God. John the Baptist said, he must 
increase and I must decrease. So as a discipler, what are you reflecting? What are you reflecting as a discipler? Are you prepared to decrease so that he may increase? We can spend a lot of our time, and I've done it, and I still do it, reflecting my own glory. And it's the Lord's Holy Spirit that needs to keep prompting us to say, that's not what you're meant to be doing. You're to be reflecting my glory. I think of a, a Christian artist that I went and saw years ago when I was an undergraduate. And um, I, I won't tell you his name. <laughs> He's probably still out there somewhere, an American artist. And uh, he was doing this concert, and he was standing on the stage saying, I want to give all the glory to God. I want to really give God glory through this performance. And what struck me was that right behind him was his name in massive neon signs flashing on and on and on. And he's standing there, I want to give the glory to God. I thought, there's something wrong with this picture <laughs> because I'm hearing your words, but your actions are really not keeping up with what you say because you're drawing a lot of the glory to yourself. And as a Christian discipler, we are meant to reflect the glory of God. And finally, he became a servant. If we read from Paul's letters, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The King James Version says he did not consider it robbery. What do we feel we are owed? A salary, a certain amount of recognition and respect? What would we consider robbery if we were denied it? Jesus didn't consider equality with God taken away from him to be robbery. What do we consider that? I'll hear people say, well, I can afford a week or two, a year to commit to God's work. But, you know, beyond that, I, I simply can't survive without the salary that I have. I say, really? You can't survive? Are you serious about that? Well, okay, I could give three weeks of my time. I say, well, now how about giving all your time? Why don't you give all your time to the Lord and see how he can use it? What do we feel we are owed? And this is a frequent issue that we talk about in people. They say, well, you know, I'd love to go do that mission work somewhere, but I just can't survive on that salary. Really? You really can't. I bet you could. I bet the Lord could sustain you through that. I bet you you could choose to take a lower salary than you could earn. You say, yeah, but I've worked hard for this, and I'm, it's my due. It's my right. That's what we feel in our hearts, and that's a big reason why there are not more people out working in underprivileged areas, to be honest, because we feel we are owed a certain lifestyle, a certain amount of respect, a certain salary. And then we read in John 13, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you, that you should do as I have done for you. He became a servant. This is perhaps the most startling distinctive of Christian discipleship that I can think of. We don't see this in secular training. How many of you um, in your training had your teacher wash your feet? How many of your consultants, those of you who are medical doctors, how many of your consultants during your training years washed your feet for you? <laughs> no, we don't see that. I certainly didn't see this. I was the dog. I was the intern meant to do the, the scut work and the job. That's, and eventually you work your way up where you can dump it on another dog that's below you. And that's the cycle of training that we find in medicine in secular areas. Are you prepared to wash your disciples' feet? Maybe you should think about that before you choose your disciples. But uh, are you prepared to wash your disciples' feet? Now you say, nobody does this, really. <laughs> Come on. You can't be serious. Nobody actually does this. Is that really true? This is one of our beginning our internship year. Uh, washing the feet of some of our interns with the consultants all taking part in that. This is Dr. Spears washing one of our new trainees' feet and Dr. Bem washing somebody's feet and Dr. Bergert washing somebody's feet. It does happen and it can happen. Now, if Jesus were in our culture in 2013, what would he do? Foot washing was a more common thing at that time. So what would happen in our culture? What would it look like in today's culture? Maybe it's washing the dishes. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, cleaning up the operating room yourself <laughs> after your operation. Maybe it's making or buying something for the residents to eat, which is always a big hit, I've found, among residents. Maybe it's showing up at night and taking the time to teach your residents when it'd be a lot quicker to just do it yourself or get somebody else to do it. And maybe it's making time outside of work for your residents. I don't know what it is. What is it in your culture? What are you doing to wash the feet of your disciples and show them that you are a servant to them? Jesus' model, he came in the flesh and he dwelt among us, and he reflected the glory of the Father, and he became a servant. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, where will you serve? Where will you disciple? Because if you're a Christian, not serving is not an option. You can't say, well, I'm not called to serve. Yes, you are. If you are a Christian, you are called to serve. Where will you serve? When I was a medical student, I was struck by an analogy that a missionary surgeon from Nepal shared one time. He said, if you came upon ten people carrying a heavy log, and nine were carrying one end of the log, and one was carrying the other end, and you wanted to help, where would you go? Well, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? These, these are our ten surgical residents, by the way, and that's the chief resident. She's one of the smallest ones. We had to take that picture very quickly because uh, the log was actually very, very heavy. If you wanted to help, where would you go? Does anyone know who this is? I'll be surprised if you do. But 
Anybody? He's an American. Maybe this will help. He was incarcerated. His name is Willie Sutton. He was a famous man. He's famous because he was a famous bank robber. He robbed over 100 banks in the United States. He was in prison multiple times. He escaped from prison four times. Eventually served more than half his life in prison and was finally released when he was an old man. He was quite famous. And he was asked by a reporter one day, why, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. It's a pretty obvious answer. That's where the money is. If you want to get money, you go where the money is. If you want to help people who are hurting and use medical missions as a tool to evangelize the world, go where the money is. And where is the money? Well, if you look at the world and see doctors in general, doctor to patient ratio, you can see where those areas are. We're in one. We're standing in one right now. Um, if you look in a little slightly different way, again, putting numbers on of doctor to patient ratios throughout the world, this is what it looks like. And when I talk to my American colleagues and say, so you want to stay up there in that yellow part, huh? which is 300 to 1. You don't want to come down here where it's 50,000 to 1. Where would you go if you're really trying to help? If we look here in Kenya, right here in Kenya, in Nairobi, we have 8% of the population of Kenya lives in Nairobi. More than one-third of the doctors in Kenya practice in Nairobi. Some of them might be you sitting right here. Why is that? Is that where the need is, particularly? If you add all the other cities, if you add Kisumu and Mombasa and Nakuru and Eldoret, you're now well over two-thirds of the doctors in Kenya are in those places. Is that where the need is? Is that where the money is? I don't think so. If you look internationally here within Africa, this is what the WHO gives as guidelines for required minimum number of surgeons. Kenya's not doing too badly. They're at 19% they're at as you can see right here. Uh, but again, it's disproportionate because the vast majority of that 19% is here in Nairobi and a few of the other cities. Um, look at some of these other countries where you could be serving. Ethiopia is 7%. Mozambique is 6%. The United States has 267% of minimum need. So I don't encourage my American colleagues to stay there if they're interested in helping. Why are more people not stepping out and going to those parts of the world to disciple people where the need is greatest? To me, it's a simple matter of physics. It's the law of inertia. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. And when you talk to most people and say, so tell me about your calling, how you ended up here, wherever here is, whether that's Nairobi or Chicago or... They say, well, I don't know, I just found a job or I grew up in this area or, you know, I, I didn't really have a calling, I just, this is where I ended up. And I say, well, that's kind of sad, isn't it? That you didn't see a need that the Lord put before you when you followed it and, and went after where the money is and went there and discipled people. Jesus' model of long-lasting transformation was discipleship. He came in the flesh. He knew that discipleship has to be done in the flesh, in real time, and it takes time. And he dwelt among us, and he reflected 
the Father's glory, and he became a servant. I personally chose to try to go to the, the end with less people. Where will you choose to go? Where will God use you to disciple others? Thank you very much.